You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Hi, everyone. It's Michelle Camayo. Thanks for joining me today. I'm the compliance leader here at Bolton IMA, and I'm working with employers on a daily basis. We're having these practical discussions with employers. I am not giving legal advice. As always, there are lots of emerging ordinances, so be diligent with your updates. Make sure you're subscribed to the blogs that are relevant to you and in your role at your organization. Make sure you're checking reliable news sources. Make sure that you, you've got all the updates that you need. For today, the objective is to have um, is to help employers address or solve compliance concerns and issues that are most meaningful to you, the audience member. So that's how Ask Michelle was created. That's why I welcome you to open up that questions toolbar. And if you have any questions, just submit those. I will monitor that throughout today's 30 minutes. Okay, so we are ready. This is a 30 minute format, so if you're new, that's what you can expect. We'll go until um, 30 minutes past the hour, just about. First, I'm gonna start off with some updates, what I call compliance chatter, and then I'll answer questions that were submitted throughout the month. And you can submit questions too. You can do that in advance to askmichelle at boltonco.com. Feel free to submit your question there, and I'll read it on air, give you the answer, or if I don't have a chance to read it on air, I'll just reply to your email. All right, well, let's see what we have as far as compliance chatter. This is what I've been hearing out there in the market from other employers, or what's new. A first thing, this, this is something that I have said for the past year, maybe even longer. Uh, California does not have statutory long-term care. We don't. So full stop. There are the problem is there's a lot of vendors or sales reps or uh, reps of any organization that are out there drumming up business, and for them to do that, they're talking about this um, long-term care task force that was created, but they might use misleading language if they're a bad actor to get you to feel some urgency. But I have to tell you, and I will say this again, California does not have a statutory long-term care program. We do not have a tax. We don't even have a proposed bill to create such a program. So we're still a ways away. Now, I couldn't say for sure that we won't have one in the future. We very well may, we very may well have one here in California, but we certainly do not have one right now. So I couldn't even speculate on what one would look like because there's not a proposed bill out there. That was just a reminder for those that might get emails or maybe your employee will approach you and say, hey, someone told me that I need long-term care because there's going to be a tax and uh, I hope that helps you. The Blue Cross Blue Shield Association class action lawsuit settlement, there's been an update to that. This is something that we filled out back in 2021. If you had Anthem or Blue Cross or Blue Shield or both within a certain time frame, 
you had until November 5th of 2021 to file a claim to be um, a part of this class action lawsuit and to receive some money. So they, we thought we were all going to get money last year. We didn't know how much. We really have no clue how much. But that didn't happen. And the reason why is there was an appeal in the court. But now that appeal has been denied. It looks like barring any other unforeseen developments that employers who previously filed claims for their share of the settlement should start receiving payments sometime in the first part of 2024. And if you go to the official Blue Cross Blue Shield settlement website, it indicates that claimants should check back in February for additional updates. So there might be some movement or there should be some movement on this next year. And I can tell you, I was a, an Anthem member for several of those years, and I filed a claim myself as an individual who was enrolled in that product, uh, as well as my children. So I'm curious to see how much that I will get of that settlement. I have a feeling it's going to be, you know, between 3 and $5. But uh, I think we're all waiting for that, and none of us really know. More California-specific updates. So if you are at an employer and your employer has a fully insured health plan that was written inside of California or written um, with a California plan, then that plan must cover over-the-counter contraception starting with the renewal in 2024. Or if you start a brand new plan in 2024, then you'll have to have OTC contraceptive coverage starting when your plan begins. So let's say, for example, your plan renews April 1 of 2024, and you're a fully insured plan here in California, then your plan is going to have to cover OTC contraception beginning April 1. This was a law that was passed last year, but it just wasn't that relevant because at the time, there wasn't any FDA-approved OTC contraceptives on the market. So it was sort of like, oh, okay, great, this is great, but what does it mean to me right now? And it didn't mean anything back then because there was nothing on the market or um, nothing that was FDA approved. But that has changed. The There is a manufacturer who's FDA approved for the pill, and that is going to supposed to be over the counter next year, first quarter of 2024. I wrote a blog on that. So if you are subscribed to the Bolton blog, you would have received an article on that. And if you're not, feel free to go to boltonco.com slash blog and check out that blog posting. I was speaking with Hannah and Nicole from Fisher Phillips yesterday regarding something that's new that's getting a lot of interest from employers, and that's the California New Workplace Violence Prevention, Prevention Standard. And most of all the employers in California, except for uh, healthcare, have to have a workplace violence plan in place by July 1 of 2024. And I feel like we're really fortunate here at Bolton IMA because we have Stephanie Nobriga, and she has, she's our VP of risk control, by the way. She's fantastic if you've ever worked with her, if you've ever had a chance to do that. But she has an inside track with Cal OSHA. And she was telling me that Cal OSHA doesn't have this on their agenda for December. So they don't feel a sense of urgency with regards to this. And there's loose speculation 
So I want to emphasize loose speculation that maybe that July 1 date will get pushed. We don't know for sure. So please don't go out there saying, oh, it's nothing to worry about. It's not going to happen July 1. Um, I would go ahead and, and proceed as if it is happening July 1 because we don't know any different. I just wanted to put that out there. There are a lot of companies, including Fisher Phillips, that are out there educating employers on the new workplace violence prevention standard. And uh, that's a good thing because we, we know that our employers in California need to start looking at that, at least need to know what you need to do by the July 1 date. But certainly more information will start to come to light when Cal OSHA does eventually adopt those final standards. And you want to keep track of that to ensure that you're following the, the deadline. The next topic that we're hearing a lot about is a topic that's not really fun. I don't know if any of these topics are fun, by the way. I'm not saying that. But this one in particular is frustrating. It's the gag clause attestations that are due. So I'll back up and say that in December 20th, of 2020, um, there was a law that was passed that said that provider agreements could no longer have gag clauses. It's called gag clause prohibition. It's a good thing. And that happened December 27th of 2020. And then 2021 comes around, 2022 comes around, and now CMS says you, you as the group health plan must make an attestation that your provider agreements for all those past years since December of 2020 have been in compliance with this gag clause prohibition. The good news is if you represent a fully insured plan, then the carrier is very likely going to attest on your behalf. You can just confirm that with your specific carrier. If they say yes, which they should if they're fully insured, then you can just save that email in your records and you can know, okay, you can just, you don't have to take action. But if you represent a self-insured medical plan, then it's very likely you will have to take action to submit this gag clause attestation. So you'll need to do some legwork. First, you'll need to confirm with all your TPAs and your PP PBMs and other relevant vendors all the way back to December of 2020. 2020, um, so you'll need to get their confirmation that they didn't have gag clauses. And once they've, once they've said yes or no, we did or didn't, then you can go into the CMS system and attest. That's a lot. It's a lot to know and a lot to keep track of what you actually need to do. So I created a video uh, with the help of my marketing team. I, I hope it's helpful. We posted it to LinkedIn. And a quick reminder, EEO1 reporting is due December 5th. It does apply to private employers with at least 100 employees, emphasis on including independent schools. So I, I spoke with um, a few independent schools recently, and sometimes I think that it's easy to forget that independent schools are included in this. So if you're an independent school, with at least 100 employees, you too do need to submit this EEO1 reporting that's due December 5th. All right, so enough of the compliance chatter. We're gonna go to the part where I read the questions out loud that were submitted throughout the month. 
I have gotten a few questions about that. So it's end of year or coming up on end of year for, I would say, the majority of FSA plans. And we're getting some questions on forfeiture balances. So here's the question. My FSA vendor said that we, so we is the actual employer, not the employee, said that we have a positive FSA forfeiture balance. And they told me that the employer can't just keep the money. Is that true? Well, it is true, but I want to just back up for a second. When we say positive FSA for, forfeiture balance, what that means is if someone left throughout the year and they had an overspent account, so let's say they only contributed a thousand, but they already used that entire healthcare FSA balance, then they have an overspent account. But let's say other people left and they had an underspent account. And at the end of the year, if you do all that accounting, if you still have a positive FSA forfeiture balance that's going to go back to the employer, you do have to treat those funds in a certain manner. So it's not well known, but FSA forfeitures must be used exclusively for the benefit of plan participants and or to pay plan expenses. So first, if you have a positive balance at the end of the year as the employer, then you can reimburse yourself for all the, the FSA TPA expenses. So if you had to pay the TPA 15 grand to administer your FSA plan, you can use that positive balance to pay down that 15 grand. Or I would say essentially you're reimbursing yourself. So that, that is one thing that you can do. If you still have a positive balance. Then the remaining forfeited funds can be returned to all the FSA participants in the form of taxable cash. And you're probably hearing that and you're saying, wait a minute, no, you can't do that. It's use it or lose it. You can't give it back. I know that for sure. Well, that's not true when it comes to positive forfeitures. And the reason why, or I should also say that you return it to your FSA participants in the form of taxable cash, but everyone has to receive the same amount regardless of how much any one employee may have contributed to the forfeited funds or forfeited amounts. So everyone that was an FSA participant has to receive the same amount, whether or not they only contributed 500 or maybe they contributed the maximum. It has to be the same amount. Those are the forfeiture rules that you must follow. So I said a lot. I'm just going to summarize. The positive forfeiture balance, if you happen to have one, I would say majority of employers don't. It's sort of even out throughout the year. But if you do as the employer, you can't just keep the money. You have to do an accounting of that positive balance. And first thing you can do is reimburse yourself for all the FSA TPA expenses that you paid in the planned year. If you still have a leftover balance, then you have to look at returning that money in a uniform manner to all FSA participants. As a question on that topic, do employers need some sort of proof that they use their FSA forfeiture funds for the benefit of the plan participants? Absolutely, uh, yes, because if you're ever audited, you want to be able to have an accounting of that money. So yes, you want to account for that money and whether it's an Excel spreadsheet showing the balance and what you did with it, that could be something as simple as that. 
and your suggestion, who the person who submitted this said, how about keeping receipts from the TPA? Absolutely. So if you reimburse yourself out of that positive balance, you also should, in that same folder of accounting, include the receipts from the TPA or the invoices from the TPA. Just so if someone said, well, you paid yourself back 15 grand, but now prove to me that the TPA charged you 15 grand. So yes, save all of that. Save all of that for your accounting purposes. And that way, if you're ever audited, it's right there. You have a paper trail. Oh, that's a good question. Regarding those positive FSA balances, can they use it for COBRA admin fees? No, they cannot. That's completely separate. But a very good question. I'm sure someone would have uh, else was thinking it, but no, it cannot be used for COBRA admin fees. A question on, does the refund of positive forfeitures include terminated participants? It's a great question. There's a very long answer. I'm going to give you the short answer. It, the short answer is it doesn't have to. You could just give it to your current participants, and we believe, based on guidance that and the regulations, that you could even only give it to those who participate in the current year and the next year, so who participate in 2023 and 2024. So we think that's that's okay to do as well. So the, the short answer is no. Uh, we don't believe you have to include terminated participants, and even further, we think that you could limit the return of funds to those who contributed in 2023 and 2024, so the current and the new year. Oh, I also like this question. Thank you for submitting it. Can the positive balance be used to offset the negative balance? Yes. And this is where I wanted to kind of emphasize this. When we say a positive FSA forfeiture balance, that should already include the accounting of the negative balances. So if your FSA vendor comes to you and says, you have a positive forfeiture balance, they should already have accounted for the overspent and underspent accounts. And that positive forfeiture balance should be the true balance, even uh, offsetting those negative balances. And if it doesn't, then definitely, absolutely, if you've had some negative balances, that can be used um, to offset the positive balance. And a follow-up question to that, should our FSA TPA have this information reconciled? I think they should for sure. I, I don't see why they wouldn't, and, and I would think it would even be itemized, but I, candidly, I've never seen one, so I wouldn't have insight into into their administrative practices, but I imagine if you ask them to give you an accounting of it to reconcile that, they would certainly be able to give you that information. The next question might be an obvious answer, but I wanted to bring it up because I think it's a, it's a good question. So this person asked me, an employee didn't meet the open enrollment deadline and the employee's asking for an extension. And they wondered if they're able to extend the OE deadline without violating Section 125 rules, or any rule for that matter. They just wanted to know if they could do it and still be in compliance. So I wanted to point out that, yes, you can extend an open enrollment deadline as long as we're talking about a prospective enrollment. Um, now, let's say your open enrollment deadline is uh, uh, December 31st and your effective date is January 1. In that instance, no, you can't extend the deadline because the enrollment wouldn't be prospective for January 1. 
but I wanted you to know that there aren't any specific rules specifying an exact time frame for open enrollment other than the Section 125 rules require that a reasonable amount of time is provided and that all elections have only a prospective effect. But you know if you extend that open enrollment deadline, then you are in danger of setting a precedent that you have to allow extra time maybe year over year, which if that's okay with you, that's completely within the law and the regulations. You just want to consider that if you do allow it. I know some employers um, are strict on this and some aren't, and it's truly up to you as an organization on where you land. There are no rules that would force you to, to be to stay within the, the stated deadline, if you will, as long as the enrollment for the election is prospective. I like this question about HSAs and FSAs because I, what I have found throughout my career is that not a lot of individuals realize this. So I had a question from an employee. Can an employee be enrolled in their spouse's HSA and then the employee enroll in their own company's FSA? Some of you may know that no, you cannot do that. That would disqualify the spouse and the employee from contributing to an HSA. So if, if a, a spouse or an employee has any access at all to an FSA, maybe it's a carryover amount, but if there's any access to an FSA with money in it, then that disqualifies the employee and the spouse from making HSA contributions. Now they could be enrolled in the underlying medical plan that's HSA qualified, but they cannot actively contribute to the bank account, the HSA, the actual health savings account, bank account. And the reason why is the, especially for the spouse, is that if, if I'm an employee and I have an FSA, even if I don't use it on my spouse's eligible healthcare expenses, I'm able to use it on my spouse's eligible healthcare expenses. And that is the key to why it disqualifies the spouse from contributing to an HSA. The bottom line, neither spouse can be enrolled in an FSA and then make contribution to a health savings account. You can, of course, be enrolled in an underlying medical plan that's HSA qualified, and you can just simply not make any HSA contributions. That, that is allowed, of course. All right, that's it for my questions today. If anyone has any questions, feel free to submit those. If not, we're going to go through resources, and then you um, can go back to your day, and we'll be on time for the most part. Oh, this is a, a great distinction here. Uh, someone entered into the questions, isn't the purpose of the limited purpose to allow for both? Yes, thank you for making that distinction. If there's a limited purpose FSA, then that is permissible as far as HSAs and um, not, you wouldn't then be disqualified. So the distinction is limited purpose FSA. If it's a, a healthcare FSA, uh, full use or general purpose, then that would disqualify you. But if it's a limited purpose, then yes, they could. The FSA limit is per employer, yes, someone had asked that, is it per person or per employer? It's per employer. So if you're eligible, if you have two jobs and you're eligible to participate in the FSA for both jobs, you can, you can elect the maximum under both employers.
because the limit is per employer. A question regarding, oh, yes, the dependent care FSA is per household. Yes, per household, per calendar year. That is correct. All right, shifting topics a little bit, we had a question submitted for COBRA open enrollment participants. If they choose to keep family during open enrollment because the employer is subsidizing the premium, can they go to single and take off dependents when the company no longer subsidizes? No, there's no event there. And that's the, that is one of the considerations when an employer subsidizes COBRA premium, the employer and the employee should be very aware that taking away that subsidy doesn't create any type of qualifying event to make any changes. So that particular family would have to wait until open enrollment to then cha uh, change to single only coverage or employee only coverage. All right, no more questions. So we have our resources. Don't forget for a lot of the topics that I talked about monthly, we don't issue a compliance alert. What we do is we put them up on our blog. So if you're not subscribed to the blog, you won't get these, uh, these alerts throughout the month. You'll get one alert at the end of the month. So I do highly advise or recommend, go ahead, subscribe to the blog. If you read through the blogs and you think they're of interest to you, it's at boltonco.com slash blog. You can just scroll down, enter your email address, and hit subscribe. If you're listening and you're a Bolton client for benefit-related questions, contact your team. Feel free to do that. And also don't forget our Bolton clients have mineral that they can use for a resource for the latest employment news and sample forms and policies. They've got a great paid sick leave chart or a guide, and they have those trainings, employee and supervisor trainings, and much, much more. Fisher Phillips had a, a few updates I wanted to make sure you're aware of, and I linked the articles. First, they're having an LA, a Los Angeles event for the California legislative update in case law. So you, uh, I've linked that there in case you want to attend. I believe it's December 14th. And they also released an article on EE1 reporting for independent schools specifically, even though EE1, EEO1 <laughs> reporting is for private employers with at least 100 employees, so it's very broad there for private employers, they released an article specifically speaking to independent schools. So if you're listening and you're in independent schools, you might want to check out that article if you haven't already completed your reporting. And I know I have heard that the California New Workplace Violence Standards has really gained a lot of traction. There's a ton of interest around that. So I wanted to link Fisher Phillips' article on that and let you know that if you're a Bolton PNC client, so property and casualty client, we are going to be, or I, should, I say we, but really Stephanie Nobriga and her team and those wonderful people um, that work in PNC, they are going to be tracking that for our Bolton clients as well as helping with creating that prevention uh, that plan, the new plan that they, you'll need to have as of July 1st. So more to come on that topic, but I did link the Fisher Phillips article here. I had a, looks like I got a couple questions on the HSA, so we'll go ahead and read that before I sign off today. Can an employee contribute to an HSA when his spouse's HSA is already maxed with another employer? 
yes, absolutely. You have to make sure that you're that the individual is not going over the maximum, the calendar year maximum limits set by the IRS. But in this scenario, um, if the spouse's HSA, if they're enrolled as single on the spouse's HSA and they contribute the maximum single amount and the employee is enrolled as single under their employer and contribute the single maximum amount, then you're, you're going to be within the IRS limits. But sometimes we don't like to assume because we don't know if that spouse, uh, what's happening at the spouse, <laughs> the level of the spouse or the employer contributions to an HSA or whatnot. So it's overall, I would take a more generic approach and just say, hey, you just need to ensure that you and your spouse are not going over the IRS limits that are stated. Also a question, I mentioned that someone can be enrolled in a medical plan with an HSA, but if they do not contribute, then it is okay for the FSA. That includes employer contributions. The employer contribution um, is considered for that purpose an employee contribution. So if the employer contributes to the HSA, then they, the employee cannot have an FSA. So I, I hope, I think I understood your question correctly. If the employee has an underlying HSA plan, they cannot have any employee or employer contributions in that HSA if they have an FSA. And a question about the HSA limit, is it per employer or per person? It is per individual and it depends on the level of coverage. So um, those are IRS calendar year limits per individual, and it's actually per single or per family coverage is how they do it. Uh, I think we released a blog recently on with those actual maximums, so you can check that out too. But if you Google it, it's all over the place for 2024 as well. One of the things you can Google and actually trust what you find on it, there'll be lots of credible sources with those IRS HSA maximums. All right, that looks like that looks like it's it for today. Thanks for joining me and I will see you next time. Thanks everyone.